Hi, everybody. This is Gino Vanelli. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the persons appearing on the program. It's a fresh new episode in a brand new year. Hello, 2024. So, today on Rainbow Country, Keith Haring. Art is for everybody. That and more in episode 387, so stay tuned for Gay Talk Radio right here on this fresh new episode of Rainbow Country. Hi, this is Emily Saliers from Indigo Girls. Hey everyone, this is Chris Harder, porn star, burlesque performer, and the creator of Porn to Be a Star. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Well, hello and welcome to a brand new journey through Rainbow Country. As I like to call it, a little gay radio show working to give voice to the LGBT community and beyond. And as always, I am your tour guide through Rainbow Country. I'm producer and host Mark Tara. By the way, Rainbow Country originates from CIUT-FM in Toronto and now proudly in syndication on 12 outlets across Canada from coast to coast to coast. The Yukon, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, the east coast of Canada in Newfoundland, Ontario, even down to Buffalo, New York, and online. Well, thanks to you tuning in, streaming, downloading, but ultimately listening. Together, we continue to build Rainbow Country into a nationally syndicated gay radio show, a number one LGBT podcast on Podomatic.com's Gay and Lesbian Chart, as well as being recognized as Canada's number one LGBT podcast on Feedspot.com. So today, my guest is Gil Vasquez. He is the president and CEO of the Keith Herring Foundation. There is a brand new art exhibit that's happening right now here in Toronto at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, until March 17th. My guest, Gil Vasquez, fills us in on what audiences can expect when they see Keith Herring. Art is for everybody. Plus an hour two, music from LGBT artists, independent artists, voices that we've come to know and love in classic disco, classic 80s, classic house. And on this episode, I'm featuring some classic gay 80s, some queer rock, and more. All that lies ahead as we start Journey 387 through Rainbow Country. And our first stop, the Rainbow Country Bookstore. Today, British author Adam Smith reads from his book, Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. By the way, the reading is accompanied by the parody song, Just a Quick Sniff of Poppers, from drag duo Cookie and Kushida. I was just a lad, I learned that anal sex was bad The church said it was a dirty, rotten sin But then I learned from other guys That no matter what the size The 
There's a simple trick to help you take that dick. Just a quick snip of Papa's house of penis slide right in. The penis slides right in. You can take it with a grin. Just a quick snip of Papa's helps the penis slide right in. In the most delightful way. In the winter of 1866, actually, while a medical student in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, Brunton met a patient called William H. This young man was only 26, but already had trained as a blacksmith and then switched to toll keeper. His first job may have required too much exertion for him to continue because Brunton's notes reveal that William suffered from heart trouble. When Brunton met him, William had recently been hit by a dull, heavy pain about the left nipple every three days or so, lasting for at least half an hour. The pain had come on after years of infrequent attacks ever since he'd suffered from rheumatism as a child. After a three-week hospital stay earlier in the spring, William was back just before Christmas. Doctors gave him aconite, which slows the heart rate, and digitalis. When neither worked, Brunton gave him brandy. The strong stuff didn't help either, so there was only one thing for it. The experiment was not a stab in the dark. Brunton acted in a way that was consistent with his wishes to take basic research from the lab to the bedside and only with a decent understanding of the actual effect in the body. He had read the work of another scientist, Richardson, that amyl nitrite dilated blood vessels and had even discussed the effect with his colleague in Edinburgh, Arthur Gamgee, who had made some unpublished measurements of this effect. Brunton obtained some amyl nitrite from Gamgee, who made it for him, and consent for an experiment from his supervising physician. And this is how Brunton came to give his patient William amyl nitrite. On March the 12th, 1867, Brunton observed, The pain came on as usual at 3am. A few drops of nitrite of amyl were put on a towel and inhaled by the patient. The primary effect noticed was a suffusion of the face, and the patient felt a glow over his face and chest. The pain disappeared almost simultaneously with the occurrence of these phenomena, but returned in three minutes. He then inhaled five drops more, the pain again disappeared and did not return. I met this guy once in a bar who took me outside to his car. He spread my cheeks and tried to ram it in. I screamed, no, it's too big. He said, take it all, you pig. Then he shoved this small brown bottle up my nose. And girl, I gotta tell you something. That that quick sniff of puppers up the penis slide right in. The penis slide right in. Now I can take it with a grin. Just a quick sniff of puppers up the penis slide right in. In the most delightful way. Good queer performers push their audiences forward into the future they desire. A good performance is utopia for a moment. In the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, all of these potential utopias were willed away when the police stormed in. Performances interrupted, orgasms foregone, connections broken. The police brought their alternative performance. The police did not just want to stop what was happening. They wanted to make their own utopia for a moment. They pulled on their costumes and they put themselves to work on embodying authority, power, intimidation. As individual officers, people with homes and hobbies, they had been moved by some newspaper stories about a deadly sex craze and by others that spoke of a horrible illness killing men who had sex with each other. 
they heard the words of politicians who spoke about preserving families and protecting children. As individuals, they may even have wanted no more gay or queer people. As an organised group of individuals, each wanting to belong to something bigger than they were, police officers were grabbed by the idea of cutting the number of queer venues. All we have is the records of their group performance, the way they stopped gay and queer people. They arrested our futures, at least for a night or two. The story of these raids is a story from the past, but it is about how we live in the present, creating a future. In every moment we are performing, making choices about the future we want to build for ourselves and others. We can be inspired by other people who are better than us at articulating a future, but it is not some distant, formless thing. How we are living now is always creating a future, whether we like it or not. Whether or not we are trying, we are performing a future. As a genderqueer dancer stretches the limbs they have, they bring us into their utopia for a moment. Wow, this stuff is amazing! Yeah, let me try some. I've never done it before. Wow, this is hot. Shit. Hey, Cookie, let's yeah. put something in my ass and oh, see if it works. I just dropped the whole thing on the carpet. Here, bend over. Let me try this chair. Oh my god, I can't even feel anything. Shit, the whole thing fits. Wow, the room is spinning wow. right now. These are great, but you know what? You can't use them if you're taking Viagra. Why? Well, because you'll die. Oh, that's a problem. Yeah. Wow, this stuff is amazing. So this goes out to all the guys who are too concerned with size. It really doesn't matter anymore. As you watch his manhood grow, shove that bottle up your nose. Relax, relax your whole, your whole, and slide down on that pole. Just a twist in the puppet, tuck the penis slide right in, the penis slide right in. You can take it with a grin. Just a quick slip the puppet, tuck the penis slide right in, in the most delightful, making it not frightful, in the most delightful way. Coming up next, Keith Haring, Art is for Everybody. Hi everyone, this is Mark Tewksbury, Olympic champion, leader, humanitarian. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Gil Vasquez, hi, how are you? Hi, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I have to say thank you so much for being here, to have your voice, your story be heard by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you for that, especially to talk about Keith Haring. Art is for everybody. Uh, This is an art exhibit happening here in Toronto at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, until March 2024, until March 2024. Uh, Gil, let's start here. What can audiences expect when they come to see uh, Keith Haring, Art is for Everybody, at the AGO? Talk to me about some of the pieces that they'll, they'll see. Well, I think what you will learn... Uh, when you go to the show is that, you you know, you think you may 
I think the average person has a sort of preconceived notion about Keith and who he was. Uh, and there's a lot to discover at the show. Uh, there's a lot to discover about his activism, uh, about his, just his pride, you know, his, 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 his pride about being out and being open uh, and wanting to engage in the, com in the difficult conversations. Uh, you know, we think of Keith as being somewhat accessible and, and sort of easy to, to read. Uh, but, you know, in, in some of the pieces at the show, uh, you know, he, he tackles some really difficult subject matter uh, and, and wants to, wants the viewer to, to engage in a, in a conversation. And it's also a, a very much a, a multimedia experience. There are videos showing uh, of him being interviewed and, and documentary and uh, him painting and all that sort of stuff, all that sort of good stuff. Uh, you, you are the, the, the president and the executive director of the Keith Haring Foundation. You're also a DJ. But let's take a step back and talk to me, if you can, about Keith Haring and who who essentially was this man? My goodness, you know, I, I I think of Keith as as someone who, you know, came from a very small town, very conservative upbringing. I would say, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania being a, a red state most of the time, uh, and having to escape to become himself, to become his, the true version of himself. Uh, he he kind of went the long way, I would say. He, he hitchhiked across the country and, and you, know, you know, did a lot of sort of self-discovery in the process. Uh, and when he landed in New York, uh, I, I think it was the beginning of, of him becoming his true self, finding his tribe, uh, finding, you know, like-minded individuals who were, you know, also artists, uh, you know, and artists te tend to be sort of ahead of, of everyone. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's finding his tribe, he's in New York City, you know, and, and also we, we have to think about, about his time. We have to think about, you know, the, the presidency, the, the, the Reagan presidency and, and, Reagan being sort of very closely aligned to Thatcher across the pond. Uh, it was a, a conservative time. Uh, and he was very young. Very young. But he, he passed away, I believe, in 1990? He, he passed away in 1990 at of, age 31. Yeah, of, of I believe, like AIDS-related complications. Correct. At 31, you just said, how did the two of you meet? Uh, I used to work at a T-shirt store very near his studio. He walks in one day looking for someone who he knew that worked there but wasn't there that day. Uh, and when the guy comes in the next day, I say to him, I'm like, I, 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 I think Keith Herring was here looking for you. Is that possible? And he said, yes, he's an old friend. We used to go to the Paradise Garage and, you know. Uh, and would you like to visit the studio? I'm like, what? Of course. 
I, I again had a, a preconceived notion at, at at the tender age of seventeen, maybe a month away from my eighteenth birthday, of who Keith Haring was. Uh, I knew his I knew his subway drawings. I knew the pop shop. Uh, also, being a DJ, I knew that he worked. Uh, he he did a campaign with Adidas and Run DMC. So I was, I you know I was a, a fan already, but didn't know that much about the man. Uh, and when I went into the studio for the first time, you know what I like to say is like it, it was like landing on Mars. Uh, I, I just didn't have the the context for what I walked into. Uh, paintings everywhere, drawings everywhere, T-shirts, staff walking back and forth. Uh, was this you know, when you met him? Was this at the height of his his career? Would you say? I would say so. Nineteen. It, it was May of nineteen eighty eight. So he was already a mega star. Mm. Uh, you know successful super successful artist mm -hmm. so yeah i'd say he was at the height you just mentioned you, you knew his 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 street art he's did he start out as a street artist you know i i, I think it was i i think he he drew as a traditional artist he 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 <laughs> Loved history, so he he looked into lots of artists. There were lots of people that influenced him, people like Liget, people like uh Matisse, Alashinsky. So he was he was a student of art. So to say he was a street artist primarily first, I wouldn't say that. No. I'd say that uh in in finding his vocabulary through drawing and looking at an opportunity, uh to see these black panels in, in in the subway stations in New York City, that really was like when the light bulb went off, when it was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I've, I've been talking, I've been thinking about this art is for everybody idea and that it shouldn't be for only people that visit galleries and museums. Let me bring this to the people. Let me bring art to the people. And in a sense, that was, you know, the very first sort of, activist uh move that he made right it's it's bringing art to the people as 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 a mission mm. what would you was there a big break that that keith herring had as an artist as a visual artist was there something that that catapulted him to into the the mainstream or was it just a progression of his art I think it was a combination of things. I think I think the Shafrazi show in 1982 uh was it was a monumental show and and you know I think that was really the the quote unquote break. Uh you know, he covered nearly every inch of 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 the walls. There's a DJ. It it, it felt like a party atmosphere, you know, 1982 you know the the downtown culture and the uptown culture are mixing so you know not only are there art aficionados at the opening but then there's also b-boys there's also you know these break dancers and, and it's just a, a confluence of of different sort of cultures that are that are melding mm -hmm. uh and i think that was that might have been the the sort of quote unquote break mm. 
I have a, a provocative question for you. Do you think size matters? Does size matter? Mm-hmm. Yes. The short answer to that question is yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. I, I, I think, I think, and I'm asking this tongue-in-cheekly, but I'm also very seriously because the size, the scale of some of Keith Haring's uh, pieces, people might be surprised at. Some of some, a lot of them are huge, enormous. Did do you yeah, think Keith, Keith was a size queen? Yes, he was. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, I think he, I think he relished uh, scale. I, I think he relished, you know, when, when Keith painted something in an, enor- in an enormous scale, a w- couple of interesting things is that one is that he never backed away. He never backed away from the work itself until it was done. So he's not mindful of, of, You know, I guess he is mindful of scale, but he's not checking himself as the painting is progressing. So it's it's up in his face. He's creating it and will not back away until it's done. And that's how he created almost every mural, every painting that I ever saw, no matter how big or small. Do you think he had a preference, whether it was a a more compact painting or a large scale painting. Do you think he had a preference for the size of his I, art? You know, I don't know. I don't know if he had a preference. I think it depended on the the audience or the the theme. Uh, if it was a mural, certainly he he wanted it to be big and and noticeable and wanted it to stand out. Uh, he was very mindful of scale, uh, and I think I think he. Um, I don't know if preference is is a good word, but you know he he knew what the audience he you know it depended on the audience i think mm-hmm. Andy Warhol was he instrumental in 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 Keith Herring opening up his pop shop? I think he absolutely was i think I think Andy was instrumental in implying permission for the 80s downtown artists to not fall for the old starving artist trope and sort of implying permission to be successful money-making artists. Uh, You know, Keith was widely criticized for opening the pop shop initially. Uh, the way I see it, the pop shop, in a sense, was in ex- was the continuation of access to his art, right? So he stopped making he stopped he stopped making subway drawings in 1985 because it was unsustainable, right? He's he's doing these chalk drawings for free for the public for the benefit of the public in the subway stations, and <laughs> and by 1985, these things are getting ripped from the wall being stolen uh so in a sense it it, that that sort of activism or that that statement that he was trying to make that art is for everybody had run its course in that in that way uh 
and I think the way that he thought was like, okay, well, the extension of that is to create a store where people can purchase, you know, people that can't afford a then thirty or forty thousand dollar painting could buy a twenty five dollar shirt or a twenty dollar hat and still have access to the art. You just mentioned uh, drawings, uh, subways, uh, things being ripped off the wall. He was also arrested a number of times for vandalism. And this is part of this exhibit. What is it about him? Do you think that, okay, if I was arrested once, that would be it. But he, (laughs) but he kept, it's like, girl can only take so much. Okay. Right. Right. Uh, But what, what do you think kept him going back and back and back, pushing that button over and over again? Well, I think he, I think he had a point to make. Hmm. Uh, and and it, it transcended the law. You know, if, if your mission is, is, you know, art is for everybody and, and your way to, to get that across is to do a quick chalk drawing on a black panel that's empty anyway, that's not being used. Uh, you know, it, not only did Keith think art was for everybody, but he also he also felt that art was a, a right. It was a, it was almost like it was a given that people should have this. So you know, being arrested for him uh, was not going to deter him, right? It's almost like you know, and this is maybe a, a not a good comparison, but when people are protesting or or fighting for a particular cause mm-hmm. and they get arrested that's not the end mm-hmm. right they they generally continue that fight uh and i think that's it, it was similar for keith in that way another piece that's part of this uh exhibit is um a drawing that he did of a part of himself and it says actual size do you think that <laughs> You may not you may not remember what I'm talking about. I don't necessarily want to give it away, but it's part of his anatomy. And uh, I, and there, there's a drawing of it and uh, it says actual size. Do you think that Keith Haring was advertising? <laughs> Maybe. I think he was being I think he was being cheeky. Mm-hmm. He was being, you know, he you know, he's, That's his he's, sense of humor. He's playful. He was playful. He he you know, he he was open and playful and, and, you know, uh, and being his authentic self. And, yeah. Being his, himself and not, not, you know, not engaging in any shame and, mm-hmm. and not really not having any shame. Uh, you know, there was no shame in Keith's game. He, he, he really was authentic in that way. Okay. Ignorance equals fear. Fear equals death. Fight AIDS. Act up. Keith used his 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 art, his talent to help to raise awareness when it comes to AIDS and HIV and happening back in the early days of the of the the eighties. Talk to me about how important that was to him. I mean, it was it was extremely important, extremely personal. You know, Keith was was a person who who relished fame, but not for the sake of fame, not for the sake of 
notoriety and being able to get a good seat at a restaurant or anything like that. Although those were things that he also enjoyed, but I think he, he, he used, he leveraged fame uh, for, for causes, for things that he thought were important and, and, you know, act up uh, the fight against HIV AIDS was extremely personal, right? You know, what people forget about that time is that the president, of the United States at that time took office in, I want to say January of 1981, did not mention, did not mention HIV AIDS until July of 1985, as if, as if a pandemic was not happening, as if people were not dropping dead uh, at a, at a, at an astonishing rate, you know, this was just ignored uh, because of who was dying, right? It was, it was gay men, mostly. It was people that were taking intravenous drugs. It was, uh, you know, people that had blood transfusions. It was, I think Haitians even were considered a high risk group at that time, which was, again, like just, you know, so blatantly like racist. Uh, so yeah, it was extremely, extremely personal uh, for Keith. Uh, his own friends were dying. He knew that he, you know, uh, he was diagnosed in 1988. So before that, he felt that, you know, the chances were high that he was uh, sick. So it was, it was very personal for him. Do you think that he had a sense that that he was on a limited time frame? Oh my goodness, yes. I think I think very early on he he sort of had this foreboding mm. thought that he would not live very long. Mm. Uh and you know, I he was already a self-described workaholic. Uh so I think he would have worked hard anyway, but the the sort of the the cloud of death hanging above him and around him uh, i'm sure intensified his uh his output wanting to sort of check boxes and say okay i did this mm-hmm. okay I, I painted on a blimp okay i did uh, <laughs> you know, and just all these things that he wanted to do while he still had the life and energy to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a remarkable thing to, to behold uh, and even more remarkable in hindsight when, when I think about it. And on that note, we'll return after this Rainbow Country update. Hi, I'm Keegan Hurst, former professional rugby player, coach, raving homosexual, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Hey 
Hitmakers is a full-service, award-winning record label and social enterprise based in Iqaluit, Nunavut. We specialize in the creating and marketing of world-class Inuit and indigenous music, including pop, hip-hop, rock, folk, and traditional Inuit music. Hitmakers has studios in Iqaluit, Ottawa, and Toronto. The label currently works with more than 20 Inuit and indigenous artists, and we represent and promote many more. The company was founded in 2016, and our mission is to create viable careers in the arts for Inuit and indigenous artists through music, media, and education. Our secondary mission is to empower artists to share and strengthen their stories and culture. To learn more, please connect with us on social media or at hitmakers.com. That's hitmakers with a Z. Thanks for listening. Koyanami. So this is the first fresh episode of 2024. So how's the new year treating you so far? By the way, if you would like to be a guest on Rainbow Country, or maybe you know someone who should be a guest on the show, by all means, please do contact me. You can send me an email, marktaramusic at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on socials at marktara. Either way, get a hold of me, because you too can be a guest on the show. So come on down and share your story. Hi, my name is Joanne Vanicola, and I'm an actor and a writer. And I was first on Rainbow Country with Mark Tara on discussing the massacre at Pulse Club in in Orlando. Um, I realized how important it was for our community to have a radio station uh, specifically for our issues to to talk about people in in the LGBTQ community and to provide an outlet for our stories, um, to discuss uh, our politics, culture, and give voice to the the issues that matter to us. And of course our artists and and, um, the things that we do globally and talk about culture and without people like Mark Tara uh, providing a space for this with with a radio show like this then uh, we wouldn't have that voice so support tune in thank you hi I'm David Pevsner I'm a writer and an actor my memoir damn shame a memoir of desire defiance and show tunes is out now you're listening to rainbow country with Mark Tara So, so Gil, you you are the president. You are the executive director of the Keith Haring Foundation. You're also a DJ. I mentioned this uh, earlier. Talk to me about the early days of you being a DJ. Did you get started make doing mixtapes? Well, I I I be I I, I made mixtapes in the 1990s. Uh, the first tape I made was in 1991, I think, and I had a partner named Double R. Uh, and we were known for like, we were known like during the time of like, in New York City of Kid Capri, of Doo-Wop, of, of DJ Ron G. And it was like this sort of subculture of hip hop that was coming up in the city uh, of, of getting these sort of mixtapes 
sort of they became widespread here in New York, and then and then it just exploded outward and and to all all parts of the world. People from all these crazy countries have have reached out to me and said, "Oh, you know, like I, I know your tapes from such and such," and I mm. yeah. What? How did that get to like <laughs> Australia? How? But yeah, that's that. That was kind of my my sort of time. You know, my my DJ time was was like in the '90s making mixtapes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, talk to me more about the the Keith Haring Foundation and essentially what what it does. So, Keith, in in you know, again, this man had such foresight. Wanted, wanted to create a foundation and did create a foundation in his own lifetime that continued his generosity. Uh, his, the causes that he cared about obviously were uh, people that were suffering uh, with HIV, AIDS, which was a huge issue then. It is a persistent issue now. Uh, and he cared about kids. He cared about enriching the lives of of kids that maybe you know are from neighborhoods that don't have access to whatever museums uh education that kind of thing so he cared a lot about kids cared a lot about people that are still struggling with with hiv aids and obviously the foundation is set up to enhance and expand his own legacy so we we do a combination of those things mm-hmm. What was it about about Keith Haring that that drew you to him, and he he was drawn to you? Well, because you guys met in 1988, and you guys ended up traveling together, became fast friends. So, what was it that attracted the two of you to each other? Do you think? I think for him, it was getting to see all the things that he enjoyed in his life through new eyes, right? There's this, this young kid who has never experienced any of this stuff before. Uh, and it was fun for him to see it through my eyes, I think, right? And for me, it was an opportunity to learn. I mean, it, this man taught me so much uh, and, and in a lot of ways is still teaching me. I'm still learning a lot about him. Uh, but he 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 taught me a lot, you know. Uh, not only did I learn a lot from him, but I unlearned a lot. Uh, and what I mean by that is that you know I come from a Puerto Rican family. My dad was a you know pretty macho guy, right? And you know now me being exposed to Keith's world puts all the things that I thought were the right way or the right teaching into question. So I'm, I'm watching this man move and, and how he operates and how he is so generous and wants to be, and wants to contribute to, to making the world better. Uh, So I have to kind of look at what I was taught all this time and reevaluate all of that. Um, and when you say and, you unlearned certain things, can you give me an example of, of what you're talking, like 
I mean, the most obviously or how to be yeah, a the man, most obvious or? thing is that, you know, that that, you know, being gay is, is wrong. It's mm. it's it's not cool. It's not it's not right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Keith did not. He, it's funny because he, he, he didn't try to convince me otherwise. He just he just was his authentic self. Uh, and I learned so much from just watching how he operated, how how he treated people, how he conducted business, uh, just how he interacted with people, how generous he was. My my dad absolutely loved Keith. You know, met Keith. My mom, oh my God, absolutely adored Keith. Uh, and they knew that I was safe with him. You know, uh, if you could imagine me at eighteen saying. Pop, you know, Keith wants to take me to Paris. <laughs> you know, this man is like, what? I, you know, I have questions. What's going on? What's, what, you know, what's going on with is my son? Is he going to take advantage of my son? Right. You know, which is, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. So I, I would probably naturally ask those kinds of questions too. Uh, but, you know, Keith, uh, they, they felt that, um, and I knew, of course, that I would, I, I, I was safe. I was safe with Keith. Um, uh, and they knew that as well. So, excuse my ignorance, but did do people assume that you are part of the LGBT community because you are uh, working with Keith Haring and his foundation? I think so. I think I think uh, I think it is. You know, it, it is an assumption that is made, but rightly or wrongly, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's fine. It's you know. It, it it is what it, it is what it is. I, I am an ally in any case, uh, and you know, I, I stick up for the things that that Keith stuck up for. You know, one of one of my, you know, one of my biggest qualms uh, as we do this, as we you know, sort of review, review grants and 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 give uh, money to organizations that 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 apply for it. You know. There are shelters here in New York City, for example, that house gay kids that that get kicked out of their homes for being gay, for being themselves. And and as a parent, I, I, it it's hard for me to wrap my brain around, you know, kicking your kid out into the street and having them fend for themselves. Uh. On a human level, uh, you know, obviously there are many levels, right? On a human level, on on dad level, on a health level, right? Because, you know, these kids now have to resort to, you know, doing things, uh, sex work, perhaps very risky sex work uh, to, to survive, uh, which creates other issues. So I, I, I'm extremely sensitive to that and, and that, that want that. That one strikes a particular chord in me, but uh, you know I'm here to to continue Keith's work, uh, and and that's what uh, I will do along with my board. Um, you know, we we will look at what he wanted to accomplish and 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 try to tackle some of those tough those tough issues. So Keith Herring, artist for everyone. It's it's on now in Toronto at the AGO, the Ontario. Uh, the Art Gallery of Ontario until March 2024. What would you like audiences 
to take away with? What do you hope audiences come away with after they've experienced uh, Keith Haring? What What do you hope audiences come away with, with from this exhibit? You know, a very important word that you said is, is hope. Uh, for as much as Keith tackled very difficult subjects, I think there's a, the common thread is, is hope that he's communicating these things to people in hopes that times will get better, that things will improve. Uh, to some extent, you know, they have, you know, to some extent issues that he was dealing with in, in his work are still, uh, a problem. You know, some of these things are, are persistent. Uh, these wars, you know, apartheid in some cases, uh, even HIV. I mean, you know, there, you know, you can live a, a long, healthy life with HIV, but there's no cure. And, and if you go to places where that, that are less developed, you know, it, it is still, uh, a death sentence. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on that front. Uh, but what I would like for audiences to come away with is that this, this man lived his life authentically and that, you know, he, he, he always, uh, wanted to communicate hope. And that's what I see in the work. Hmm. I see hope. Hmm. Well said, well said. Gil Vasquez, thank you so much for your time. Well said, well done. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. I really, truly do appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. Keith Herring, Art is for Everybody, is on now at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto, until March 17th. By the way, the exhibition is a benefit for the AGO community. So entry is for members and annual pass holders. For more information, simply visit ago.ca. Plus, for more information on the Keith Herring Foundation, simply visit herring.com. Magnus Hirschfeld made the modern homosexual. He co-founded the world's first gay rights group, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, in Berlin in 1897. But what is far more important is that he and his colleagues came up with an enormously influential concept of what same-sex desire was, what it meant, and how it fit into the wider world. If you think homosexuality is an inborn quality that cannot be changed and has a biological root, but is not an illness, and if you think gay people are a sexual minority who are born that way, and who deserve legal protections just as racial minorities do, you owe those ideas to Hirschfeld and a handful of others. He was among the first to articulate that conceptual model of what it means to be gay in print in 1896. We just heard professor, author, and historian of queer and trans politics, Lori Marhofer, reading from Racism and the Making of Gay Rights a sexologist, his student, and the Empire of Queer Love, their powerful new gay history book about the man who made the modern homosexual, a German physician and sexologist who died at the age of 67 
1935. Magnus Hirschfield. Hi, this is Mo Berg from The Pursuit of Happiness, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Taking us to hour two of Rainbow Country, a flashback to my 2015 interview with Lorraine Zagato, co-founder of the legendary Canadian 80s world music group Parachute Club. Lorraine talks about what it meant to have their classic song, Rise Up, which, by the way, she co-wrote, be chosen as the official theme for World Pride 2014, North America's first World Pride. And she also talks about her 2015 solo album, Invincible Decency. So, last year, let's backtrack a year. World Pride, uh, North America's very first World Pride held here in Toronto. And they chose, the Pride Committee chose Rise Up as the official theme for World Pride. Tell me what that meant to you. Tell me what that means to you, Lorraine. Well... I know that as uh, as writers of the song, we were we were, you know, deeply honored to know that somehow that song had representation, and it had it had a feeling that people connected with it still after all those years, you know, and they still saw it as something that meant something very significant to them. So for me, it was it was it was a great honor, and a thrill, and and a kind of almost wishing and hoping to see what would happen if if the youth, you know, if another generation of people would pick up the the meaning of the song and the importance of the song for themselves. So a curiosity question mark, like I wonder if they'll get, you know, how what the time and place was for us when we first brought that song out. So what were you hoping that the youth would pick up on then? Well, you know, for instance, I remember the first time that I played Pride, with Parachute Club and played Rise Up, um, there were 500 people running across um, the field at a U of T circle there. That's where the big stage was. Mm. The big stage was eight feet wide right. uh, after the march. And partially they were running across the field because they were terrified that people were running <laughs> after them. And partially... Um, they were running because we were playing Rise Up and, you know, it had just gone on the radio and stuff. And I always keep that in my mind because a lot of people talk to me about that. They talk to me about, you know, there was this period of time and it was almost kind of a frightening time to be gay or queer or lesbian in the community at that time. There was still a lot of, um, you know, we hadn't got to where we are now. Right. And so the time in between Rise Up was released and rise up in 2015, so many amazing things have happened. I think, though, that sometimes we forget on whose shoulders we stand. You know, the people that came before us. And I know for myself that the people that came before me are the shoulders that I stand on that gave me the courage to say things or to do things. So I was kind of hoping that people would, you know, be interested in awakening to, hey, this is what was going on when Rise Up was first released. Right. Here's what was going on in our community. So looking back 
a year ago and now, do you think, do you get a sense that people sort of, the younger generation, they tuned in, you think? No. <laughs> and I don't, mean it in a, I don't mean it in a negative way at all, mm-hmm. because I just think that there are different, I think there are different things going on now in, in our community. Um, there are different issues. Um, uh, there are many similar and common issues, but um, the issues that the youth are dealing with today are quite different than the ones we dealt with. Sure. So, yeah, no, I don't think they've twigged to it yet, but that it's not over. Yeah, it's never over. No. As far as we've come, there's way more to go. Right. You know what I'm saying in terms of equality and just being, just being equal. Well, and I think, too, you know, it's really interesting as I get to travel a lot. I think, wow, we're really in a bubble here in Toronto. Um, or if you're in a large city, you're in a bubble. Yeah. You may feel safer and you may feel like a lot of things have changed, and they have. But all you have to do is travel two hours north of Toronto into a small town and whatever, and there is still a lot of, there's still a lot of homophobia, yeah. and there's still a lot of fear. There's still a lot of people who don't quite yet know. It's just unskilled behavior. Half the time, homophobia is a kind of unskilled behavior because people don't know. They're fearful of what they don't know and don't understand. And so there's a lot to go. So you have a new record. Yes, I do. Invincible Decency. What inspired Invincible Decency? Well, um, I, I've had the chance over the many years to, um, to listen to Stephen Lewis speak because my partner is his daughter and she runs the Stephen Lewis Foundation. So I'm, you know, well, I, I listened to him speak and he's so eloquent. And he was talking one day, he was talking about um, the invincible decency of the grandmothers of Africa who have suffered, whose children have suffered the ravages of AIDS. And he was talking about how with this incredible courage and resilience and dignity and elegance in which they deal with this massive challenge of watching their children die and then having to take care of them and poverty. And he said the invincible decency. And I thought to myself, can you imagine what it would be like to be called invincibly decent or to be thought of as invincibly decent? Isn't that an incredible thing to to hold up as a mantra for yourself? So, you know, it, partially an homage to him and the work that the foundation does, and partially uh, as a way of holding up a mantra for myself, I wanted to create songs that fell under an umbrella of, you know, aspects of humanity that, that are moving towards some kind of, you know, this idea of decency. phone rings. I got a message from the mayor. He's going to call me back the next day. I get the call and he said, if you'd accept, uh, would you, we'd like to honor you with the key to the city. There was an event um, later that year in May. Just a key, right? Like key to what? A decent job, uh, a good singing career. Uh, it's really a metaphor, but it's history. So a reporter wants to talk to me and says, uh, you know, well, so it's key, right? Like, what's the big deal? I said, well, not everybody gets the key. So I looked it up, and I guess it is kind of a big deal. 
The date, May 17, 2018, when trans activist Susan Gapka made history by becoming the first trans woman to be presented with the key to the city of Toronto. By the way, past recipients include Rush and the Raptors. And just like that, this little gay journey through Rainbow Country has come to an end. For the full two-hour episode, simply head over to marktara.com where everything is connected and hit the archives banner. To keep up to date with the show, check out my socials at marktara. The podcast is available on all major platforms. Finally, I want to take this time to thank you taking your time to be with me. Remember, we are living in days of making dreams come true. So believe in yourself, and the world will believe in you. Hi, this is Police Constable Danielle Botno, also known as LGBT Cop, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Terra. Mm.